0: Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 42. And I'll go ahead and read this for us. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, in our passage today, we're entering into the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, a very important scene and event in the gospel in the life of Jesus. And here we really begin to kind of peel away at uh, the meaning of Jesus' death. I mean, that's what this has been building up to. Jesus has been talking about his death, events are leading up to his death. And what is the meaning of it all? Why must he die? And in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where we begin to really delve into that meaning. And I want to break it down to you with these three points. And first, thinking about how in the Garden we see the greatness of His suffering, and two, the greatness of His love, and three, how His greatness can be manifested in our lives. The greatness of His suffering, and that's what we'll spend the majority of time Thinking about the greatness of his love and how his greatness can be manifested in our lives. Okay, so one, the greatness of his suffering. Uh, From verse 32 and on, you see from one verse to the next, Mark is building a case for you. And then the case is, this is how great Jesus' suffering is. This is how great his agony is. So first, in verse 32, he's with his friends. And what does he tell them? Let's hang out. No, right? He says, sit here while I pray. While I pray. Now, this is late in the night. He's with his friends, and he says, sit here. I'm going to go and pray. Now, when do you pray? And when do you pray late at night? And when do you pray late at night when you're with your friends? And then say no to your friends and say, I'm going to go over there and pray. When was the last time you did that? You would only do that if you're desperate. The The only time you would pray late into the night and say, bye, friends. I'm going to go over and pray is if you're desperate. Is if you're desperate. And then notice what happens next. Jesus takes... Of the twelve, Peter, James, and John. Three of his closest friends and closest disciples. And it says here in verse 33 that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Okay, so something began. He, something was triggered as they were walking into the garden, as Jesus was preparing his heart to pray. Something is beginning to sink in. This reality is dawning on him and is feeling greatly distressed. There's alarms going off in his body. He's feeling troubled, greatly troubled, just disoriented, just like his, his life is disintegrating. Greatly distressed in the Greek also means to be greatly surprised, shocked, or astounded. So, think about what kind of a surprise this is, just, just logically, okay? It's, it's, it's such a surprise that it would surprise Jesus, the Son of God. But you would think nothing can surprise Jesus, right? Nothing can surprise him. This is the only occasion in the gospel where I would say one of the two occasions where Jesus is astonished, surprised, and shocked. The other occasion is at the faith of the centurion. He's amazed, like, wow. And this is the other occasion where Jesus says, wow, in his mind, why? What would cause the Son of God to react in shock and, and and consider how personally he's taking all this in Okay, it's not oh, what an awful thing that's going to happen to so and so he's taking in all this as if it's going to fall upon himself this incredible pain and sorrow that's coming over him okay? and that's why in the next verse he shares this with his friends in verse 34 he says my soul is very sorrowful even to death I'm I'm so overwhelmed with sorrow, it feels as though I'm at the point of death. It's it's feeling like this this pain is enough to kill me. Before I get killed, I feel like I'm, I'm already going to be killed just by this feeling alone. That's what he's saying. He's in this terrible agony and pain. In Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, you also get this visual image as well. Uh, where Jesus comes back from praying and he 's drenched in sweat, but not only that, uh, there 's blood in his sweat. And, and Luke, being a physician, it seems appropriate that he would include that piece of detail. It is, it is possible for blood to come, up, come out of your, your pores if you are in, in a terrible, if you 're experiencing a terrible shock that 's possible that 's what 's being built up here. Christ's suffering mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and and physically as well. Now, here's what we have to understand. We, We know from just having walked through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had predicted, he had known about, he's taught about his death time and time again. Meaning what? The shock here he's experiencing is not in the fact that he will suffer and die. He knew that. And being the Son of God, He orchestrated that. The shock here is not in the fact that He will suffer and die. He knew that. What does the shock here mean? Not about the fact that He will suffer and die, but the magnitude of His suffering and death. The magnitude of His suffering. The greatness of His suffering and death. That's what's shocking. Now, Why is Jesus' suffering and his death such a shocking thing? Why is it so terrible, so agonizing, so horrifying, even to the Son of God? Here's why. This is what's dawning on Jesus. It's the cup. It's the cup of God's wrath. Take a look at verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So in the Bible, um, especially in the Old Testament... You see two kinds of justices being done. It's the civil justice being performed by civil authorities placed in, uh, placed by God, and divine justice performed by God Himself. This cup metaphor refers to God's divine justice. So in in Jeremiah. 25, God says, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Okay, that's referring to God's own prudent, his just, and his perfect execution of his justice. Isaiah 51, he speaks of those who drink the cup of his wrath, the bowl of staggering. That's again referring to God's execution of his justice. Okay? Why is Jesus suffering and going into shock? because what he will suffer is not simply those, that suffering that will be inflicted by the Romans and the Jews and the scribes, but by God himself, the Almighty God. Jesus is getting a little mental foretaste, a psychological foretaste, a spiritual foretaste of drinking the great cup of God's wrath. So think about this. The foretaste, the thought of it, The thought of it is causing him this much distress, then how much more suffering would he go through by actually drinking the cup? This is a glimpse of it. This is just a preview, image of the cup, and he is sweating blood. He's disintegrating. How much more then to drain that cup of wrath? Mark is building us up to understand something. It's the magnitude of Christ's suffering. Before he jumps into the suffering, get this. Just take a a mental picture of how great the suffering is. Now, I know this is when often the question comes. why, Why would a God of love ever allow this? And allow this to come upon his own son, no less. Where is the fatherly love? Where, where is this parent-child, father-son intimacy? And, and here's, with respect, here's the answer to that. This is where it is. This is exactly where it is. This is where the love of the father and the son, the intimacy between the two of them, is accentuated and highlighted and not diminished, and not compromised. How so? Uh, remember what Jesus cries on the cross? He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay. My God, my God, why... So in his final, ultimate moment of suffering and terror and horror, he cries out this, Why have you forsaken me? Okay. The nature of God's wrath is forsakenness. And the, the outcry that brings that, bring, brings about in Jesus is, why why have you forsaken me? It's the separation from him that causes Jesus to cry out. It's not so much the pain, it's not so much death itself, it's the separation from his Father. So what's happening with Jesus? Why is he experiencing this horror? It's because he was eternally one with the Father as his eternal Son, and they were in perfect communion, perfect fellowship, enjoying one another perfectly. And now, this thought, even the thought, of losing his, his father that's terrorizing him. It doesn't show us how distant they are. It shows us how intimate I mean, they are in love. William Lane, uh, a theologian, he, he puts it like this. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the father at the prospect of the alienation from God which is entailed in the judgment upon sin. Okay? The judgment upon sin... That so weighs upon Jesus is manifested in this way, in the manner of the one who lives entirely for the Father, wholly for the Father, being now entirely and wholly separated from the Father. So the agony and the terror, at the thought of being separated, shows, it, it magnifies how in love they were. How intimate they are from all eternity. The greatness of Jesus' suffering doesn't compromise their love and intimacy. It's not meant to show us how how separate they are. It's meant to show us how one they are. It proves their intimacy. And what it also proves is this incompatibility between our sin and God's character, God's justice. Sin, this is what sin does. It it separates, it tears away. And we already experience that just in our horizontal relationships with one another. Uh, You and I experience many wraths uh, of the people that we sin against. Uh, We experience the wrath of the unforgiving person. We experience the wrath of the calculating person. The wrath of the record keeping person. And there's no peace there, there's separation there. And in our culture today, I would say we actually revel in this sort of this you know, you see this. Instant karma videos online. People just suffering immediately for their sins. We, we it, part of us, rejoices in that. Our culture does, and that's because we inherently, we're very naturally wired, so we're good at emotionally, and relationally separating ourselves from the, ourselves from those who wrong us or wrong other people. Sin separates, and part of us understands that, rejoices in that. So. Here, logically then, how much more so, when it comes to our sin against an infinite God, how great would that separation be? How, how, how much would we feel His, His wrath upon our sin? And here's the other, other often kind of post-challenges. I mean, that's, that's unfair, this, this kind of eternal separation from God. This, is, this, this can't be fair. Actually, it's utterly fair because God is giving sinners what they choose. The only way you can be separated from an eternal God is eternally. So if you're choosing to be separated from God, you can only be separated from Him eternally. So so C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, "If, if in this life you never say to God, thy will be done, then eventually God will say to you in the afterlife, all right, your will be done. Be separated from me. Be torn away from me. Be free from me. Okay. And you will get what you hope for. And so, in a sense, he says, the doors of hell, the gates of hell, are closed from the inside. It's locked from the inside. I, I don't want God in my life. And there's only one way you can shut out God from, from your life, and that is eternally. And, and with God, all of his blessings of life, peace, joy, happiness. And that's hell. It's the absence complete absence of God and His blessings, and the only, only the presence of His justice. And that agony, that terror, that horror of being eternally separated from, from the Father, Jesus is experiencing, He's getting a foretaste of in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's beginning to see and feel what's behind the closed doors of hell. That's the source of His suffering separation from that which he loves most, his father. That's the source of his suffering, and explains the greatness. It explains the greatness of his suffering. The two go hand in hand. It's because he is so intimately in love with the father, the thought of being separated from the father causes him great pain. Tim Keller put it this way, if I were to lose the love of a friend, that would be painful. If I were to lose the love of my children or my wife, that would be infinitely more painful The longer, deeper, and more intimate the love relationship, the more searing the pain when it is severed. But the son's perfect love relationship with the father is as far beyond my love relationship with my wife as an ocean is beyond a drop. And this is what he was losing. Something infinitely more painful than losing your husband or your wife. That's what Jesus was suffering. But see, it's not even just that there's this love that's absent here, but there's a wrath present. There's two sides of the same coin in this redemption story. If Jesus is going to be truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then he has to suffer not only the absence of the Father's love, but also the presence of God's wrath. Why? So sinners get the opposite of that. The presence of the Father's love and the absence of God's wrath. Jesus gets the absence of the Father's love, presence of God's wrath. So we get what the presence of the Father's love and the absence of God's wrath. That's what He came to do for us, for you and me, to suffer the pain and die the death that you and I should have suffered and died. And this is what theologians call the passive obedience of Christ. It's sort of a passive aspect of Christ's salvation for us. He receives from the Father the wrath that we deserve. And again, the greatness of his suffering proves the other aspect to this relationship, and that is the active, the active love relationship between the Father and the Son. Okay? So, he suffers passively and gives us his active love. Okay? We get both, both sides of the same coin. It's because of Jesus' love for the Father and his obedience to the Father that he suffers so greatly here for us. And what do we get in return? We get the credit that he deserves for his active love and active obedience to the Father. That's the greatness of his suffering. It's a great loss of, of this eternal relationship with the Father. Why? So that we would not be eternally lost from God. And and, and I've already overlapped a bit with the second point, and that is how this this garden story reveals the greatness of his love, but let me go into that a little bit more now. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, an old American theologian, he does a great job uh, setting the scene for this this second point about the greatness of Jesus' love. He says this. It's, it's, It's a little lengthy, but it's really worth giving it to you in full length. He says, Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, And it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfold as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore, God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily, voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us, knowing what it was. If Jesus Christ did not Full no before he took it and drunk it, the cup of wrath, it would not properly have been his own act as a human being. But when he took that cup, knowing, knowing what it is, so was his love to us infinitely more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. See, Jesus could have simply said, I see what the suffering entails and I don't want any part of that. But Now that God the Father has revealed to me just to what degree I would have to suffer for these people, I'm out. He does not do that. Having seen the fullness of God's wrath and the true extent of his suffering, he says, I'm in. He says, I'm all in. Jesus says, Thy will be. And, and, and Edwards says, so even though his sorrows abounded, Jesus' sorrows abounded, his love did much more abound. He's a man of sorrows, yes, but driven by love. Underneath the sorrow was his love for his people, for his sheep. There was grief, yes, but the grief itself was stemming from his heart of love for sinners. He chose our grief so we would have his love. He drank the cup of God's wrath so we would drink from the cup of blessing. And this act of obedience on Jesus's part, this perfect obedience because he knew full up well what he was getting into and he chose to get into it anyway, This perfect act of obedience is credited to all those who put their faith in Him. And the Father will see us now as people who are saying to Him, Your will be done. Even though we have lived all our lives saying, My will be done. Jesus' obedience gets credited to us when we put our faith in Him. So the benefit of this love is not just that we're forgiven. Please understand this. Too many people today... Understand only half of the gospel, that the, the death of Jesus Christ gives me, offers me forgiveness of sins. Yes, but that's only half the good news. And if you only understand this half, here's what happens. You confess your sins to God, you, you acknowledge that you're a sinner, you receive the forgiveness of God, and then what? Then you go out, you, you leave church, and you think, okay, now I need to live a life worthy of that forgiveness. And stay in God's favor by living according to God's law. Living according to God's will. So I won't fall out of favor again. That's what so many people think. Because why? All you get, when you get half of the gospel, all you get is this clean slate. And what do you do with that clean slate? You need to manage it now. That's not the full gospel. The fullness of the gospel, the other 50% is this. Jesus Christ not only offers us His forgiveness, He offers us His righteousness. Meaning, he doesn't just cancel our debt, he deposits a trillion dollars worth of his righteousness into our account. And that, we can never go bankrupt. The love of Christ is not great only in this way that he forgives us our sins, it's also great because he gives us his righteousness, so that in God's eyes, when he sees us, he always sees the perfect obedience of Christ And he sees a righteous person. And it is not up to us to keep our sort of Christian life and track record pristine. It is pristine. It's pure. Why? Because we're covered in Christ. That's the fullness of the good news. And because that's given to you, because you receive that by faith, you try to live in a way that's more consistent to that by faith. Because it's so freely gifted to you, this title. It's, It's as if God is saying, here, I canceled your straight F's and I've given you straight A's. Now go study. (laughs) Okay. That's what he's saying. But if all he did was, I canceled your straight F's, now go study, that means what? you got to earn your A's now. That's not the gospel. He says, I canceled your bad grades, and I've given you a 4.0 in Jesus Christ. And that cannot be undone. No matter how much you fail, that cannot be undone. Therefore, Therefore, because of what you have received, live up to it, live it out by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become the righteousness of God. That's why he's dying. That's why he's suffering. Not simply to give us forgiveness, but to give us righteousness. That's the full extent of his love. His love is all-securing. His love perseveres. He loves... His love lasts. His love lasts to the end. His love secures us, Makes sure, makes certain that we will be loved by our Father forever, just as He is loved by the Father forever. See, in the first garden, in the Garden of Eden, Adam was taken to a tree and was told... Don't eat from that. And Adam disobeys. And he brings, as a result of that, sin and death to the human race. In this garden, in the second garden, if you will, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a second Adam, Christ. He's taken to a tree, to the cross. And he is told, You're going to have to drink from that, you're going to have to die on that tree. And this Adam obeys. He obeys. He says, your will be done. And as a result of that, he brings salvation and eternal life to the human race. The question is, which Adam do you belong to? Do you belong to the race of, the descendants of Adam who says, my will be done? Or to, to the second Adam who said, your will, your will be done? Which Adam do you belong to? The second Adam? Are you sure? And that's what takes us to the last point. How do you know? Here's how you know if this power, the power of his suffering and, and, and his love starts manifesting in your life. This is how you know. The greatness of his suffering, the greatness of his love manifesting in your life. Simply put, it's when you start loving and forgiving people the way that you've been loved and forgiven. And loving sacrifice. Okay? You have to, as, as a true follower of Christ, follower of Christ, you have, to, you have to be able to answer the question, when was the last time you sacrificially, in a self-denying way, forgave someone? And chose to carry that burden and carry that cross? Because that's what Jesus has done for you. Because Jesus said, your will be done, and not my will be done. So let me outline this in three ways from this passage. Here's how the greatness of Christ can be manifested in our lives if we're his true followers. One, it has to show up in your prayer life. Okay? Uh, this, this passage in a way very much, it's one of those key passages in the Bible that teaches us about prayer. And simply put, here, here, here's how it summarizes. Jesus knows that God's ways are perfect, right? Jesus has no doubt about that. Yet he feels anguish over it. Right? He agonizes over God's will. You see that? Right? It's not that he doubts that God's will is perfect. He knows it. He knows it. But you see him agonizing over God's will. And yet he submits and says, Your will be done. That's, that's praying. It's not trying to bend God's will to yours. It's bending your will to God. It's bending your will to His will and say, God, I may agonize over your will, but your will be done, not my will. That's prayer, and that's what we learn here. Understanding my Heavenly Father is infinitely wiser, infinitely more loving, infinitely more caring, infinitely more in control than I can ever be, and therefore I'm going to say, your will be done, even even though his will may, to me at first, seem like an agony, yet I choose to submit. Okay, that's prayer. Two, Having shown up in your prayer life, it's gotta show up in your emotional life. It's gotta show up in your emotional life. We're seeing just how Jesus is wounded here by not only just what he sees, but from his relationship with his friends. Do you see that? He's experiencing this pain of alienation, of forgottenness, of abandonment from his friends. Here's here's Jesus at his most needy hour. What are his friends doing? Sleeping on him. Right? And he comes back time and time again to say, Hey, I'm in distress. Guys, I'm <laughs> I'm sweating blood here, hanging there with me, and they sleep on it. Such friends Jesus has, right? And yet, and yet here we see they do not wear out Jesus' love for them. Right, Here, if I was Jesus, and let's say I was in that moment of just, okay, I see what I have to suffer for these guys. Here's what I'll do. If I go back and find them actually praying, just being in this art with me, I'll go through that for them. And so I go back and find my friends. They're all sleeping. They're snoring. They've forgotten about me. Then, Then I will look at them, and I'll look at that suffering and go, okay, they definitely don't deserve that. There's no way I'm going to go through that for them. That's what I would say in my flesh and in my sort of non-Christianness, right? That's still raging in me, in my nature. But here's what Christ does. He looks at sinners. He looks at his friend sleeping on him, and he looks at the suffering, and he goes, that's where I'm headed. When was the last time you extended this kind of love to another human being? When was the last time you did not let your friends who fail you, your brothers and sisters in Christ who have wounded you, when was the last time you have not let that compromise your commitment to the Lord to say, your will be done, and I will walk through the path of suffering? Okay. This, has to affect, this has to show up in your emotional life. This has to show up in your emotional life. In the way that you balance, the way that Jesus does, the agony and the obedience. Okay? Because here's what the world tells you. You feel something, just go with that. But here's what, here's what Jesus shows us. That's not a healthy emotional life. You can feel something and you can do something else. You can feel something and you can talk to it. You can say, you know what, yeah, I feel this, but here's what Jesus has taught me to do, and I'm going to submit to that. That's a healthy emotional life. Every time you feel something and you say, that's what I'm going to do, is not a healthy emotional life. Jesus gives us a healthy emotional life. Third, lastly, this has to show up in your relational life. The power of Christ in you will be proven in the way that you relate to others. In the way that you relate even to those who fall asleep on you. So here's a question for you. Is there someone who you need to forgive this way right now in your life? Here's the difference between approaching that like like the first Adam. It was her fault. Right, that was Adam's first response to God. Eve did that. And here's the thing, he's right. But he doesn't see the, the log in his own eye. He's only seeing the speck in the other's eye. Here's how Jesus approaches it. Here's how the second Adam approaches it. I'll carry the burden. I'll take the cross. While they are yet sinners, I'll take the cross. While they're still undeserving, I'll take the cross. While they are still betraying me, I'll take the cross. While they're still sleeping on me, I'll take the cross. And let me tell you this. The only way your marriage will last. The only way uh, you can consistently love your children, the only way our church can stay together is if we do this for one another. If we relate to one another this way and say, while they are yet sinners, I will carry their burdens. While they are yet sinners, I will carry their cross. You see? Do you see the meaning of his death? Do you see what he's peeling away and showing you? What he's showing you? The way the Father showed him? He's showing you what you have to walk through if you're going to follow His path. And here's the question for you now. In your agony, when you're in this garden of Gethsemane, and you have people in your life you need to forgive, will you say, my will be done or your will be done? That's the question. And as followers of Jesus Christ, here's what He's taught us to do. The the agony... The, the horror, the sorrow, and the pain, it may not go away. It probably won't go away. It's in that moment, choosing to say, Yet your will be done, and obeying. That's following after Christ. And the choice is before you. God is showing you what it costs to follow Him. And the choice is before you. Will you? Will you carry your cross? Will you deny yourself? and in your agony still choose to say, Lord, not my will, your will be done, the only way we can be a community of Christ-like people, a family that's Christ-like, a marriage that's Christ-like is if we say this, Lord, not my will, your will be done. So hope for you and for myself in the coming year, our focus will be on this. That, that the church will somehow be this garden where we gather and we're reminded of this. And every time we leave, we walk out into the world, we're equipped to do this. We're equipped to represent Christ who in his agony chose to love us, chose to carry the cross for us. And we, as, a, as his followers say, we will do the same. We will do the same. Because of the greatness of his suffering, because of the greatness of his love we will manifest that greatness in our own lives. Let's choose to do that in the coming year. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the greatness of your love and and the greatness of your suffering on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you. While we were yet sinners, while we were still unfaithful to you, while we were still running away from you, you chose to love us still. Lord, as you have reconciled us to yourself in this way, may we be reconciled to one another. And Lord, may we be sustained by nothing else. Not by some compatibility. Not by some like-mindedness in in, in what we like to eat or what we like to enjoy, what we like to play with. but, But be grounded in this alone. That we are like Christ carrying each other's burdens. Let that be the source of our unity. Let that be the source of our harmony. Let that be the source of our peace moving forward. Continue to build us up this way in the love of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name.